Welcome to Choosing Leadership, a podcast for high performers with big dreams and for leaders who know that they are more powerful than the level that they are currently playing. I am Sumit Gupta, your host and the founder CEO of the Deploy Yourself School of Leadership. I am here to help the best leaders get better and to help organizations massively improve their output and impact and at the same time eradicating workplace stress. Yes. completely eradicating not just reducing completely eradicating i believe in creating a future and a work culture where people wait for mondays not fridays and get to do their most meaningful work the aim of this podcast is not to provide you more content but instead shift the context under which you operate this podcast is titled choosing leadership because that is what leadership is a choice In each episode I will celebrate leaders who have made such choices which are not always easy and comfortable but which has helped them get to where they are today. And let us celebrate the leader in us for choosing to move over our fears, for choosing to be motivated by something bigger than ourselves and for choosing to deal with every challenge that comes on the way. Let us celebrate you right now for stepping into the unknown and taking courageous action as those were the moments when you chose leadership at the end i will share how you can be our next guest on this podcast and with that let's get started ian is the chairman of adept technology group where he has reported increased ebi tda for 29 consecutive years as a managing director and ceo he is also the author of the book the street smart mba mastering business acumen without going to school in the interview ian shares multiple stories about the lessons he has learned as a leader we talk about him getting fired and how that shaped him as a leader we speak about the difference between hiring the best people and getting the best out of people and how he found out that everybody expects respect first of all from their leaders and organizations hi ian In England, it's Ian, but everybody in Europe calls me Ian. I feel like the Iron Man when people do that, which I'm obviously not. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Love to meet you. Wonderful. Good to have you here, right? Uh, and to begin with, can you share a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what do you do? My name is Ian Fishwick. Uh, I'm currently the chairman of the Technology Group, which is listed on the London Stock Exchange. I've been an MDR chief exec for UK technology businesses for 29 years. from 1990 to 2018 uh, i had the great honor of reporting 29 consecutive years of rising ebitda which is probably a reasonable achievement given the economic background through, through that period uh, i've also done 42 technology mergers and acquisitions in that period so i've bought a lot of smaller businesses in the uk and, and over that period i've probably looked at about 1000 so you know I, i understand what the uk business looks like when i finally went part time at the end of 2018 i thought i, I want to share some of what i've learned so uh, i wrote a book right the street smart mba uh, mastering business acumen without going to school and it wasn't a textbook I, I, throughout my career i believe that you don't train people by sticking them in a classroom and doing formal you tell them stories and i think people understand and repeat stories and tell the friends uh, so i wrote hundred and something short stories and that's how i try to pass my knowledge on so that's me oh sorry and i am 
I, I sit on the UK Cabinet Office SME panel and they asked me to chair the industry working group looking at the UK's attempts to get the public sector supply chain down to carbon net zero. So I do things like that as well. Thank you, Ian, for sharing that. Yeah. And before we go into the 29 years uh, of lessons, right, everything which I've learned, can you share a little bit about your background? Like, well, what is the backstory that you, that set you up on that path? I come from a classic working class, not very wealthy family in Wigan in the northwest of England. Uh, I grew up in a terrace house, which those in England would understand that, no garden. So I was never someone who had money behind my family to start me off. So I started by doing a, a sponsored sandwich course, uh, which meant that normally I am a qualified accountant. To be an accountant, uh, you need to do a degree and then go and start to be an accountant. I went straight for an accountancy qualification and there were no breaks as soon as study stopped and you'd work for six months and get paid for it. Uh, but what it meant was at the age of 21, I started in business, what I would call two thirds of the way up the ladder. And I knew a little bit of a bit of background, which helped me to, to by the age of 30, uh, I was already a managing director. So it was a phenomenal start from a you know a relatively poor background. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And what were some of the key lessons in that initial phase of your career that you can share? The risk of being biased, uh, you do need to get to the top in business. You do need to understand numbers you, or have a friend who can explain it to you. you know, not, not everybody's a numbers expert, but you can't get rid of the fact that at the end of the day, you're there to make profit and you need to understand which, which bits of your business make money and which don't. Uh, so that idea of me analysing early on why the business that I was, say, finance director for were failing is what propelled me, I think, to being managing director. Yeah. And what are, what were some of those stories or key people who have influenced uh, your thinking in that process or maybe even before that? Uh, GEC bought Marconi, uh, and people don't remember now, but the great Lord Weinstock built GEC as a conglomerate in the UK, and he was criticised in the 1980s for having built a £2 billion cash pile and not knowing what to do with it, which is one of my great ambitions, really, to build that kind of money and not know what to do with it. It was ridiculous, you know, that this man was a, an absolute genius of cash generation. And at the point where, just before he retired, I had one budget meeting with him, right, and uh, it was in the days where there were no laptops and things you could carry information on. We all had massive ring binders of files, uh, and I also learned that this little man who spoke very quietly completely commanded the room because you had to listen to what he said. And I revised for what felt like the biggest exam of my life, uh, and I failed on the first question. I was expecting some fancy question about my business and its prospects, and he, and he just said to me, did your business's bank balance go up or down last year? And if it went down, where did the money go? And I absolutely poured with sweat and sort of, collapsed and muttered something. And it took me three weeks to realise that I'd lived through a 30-minute, very painful masterclass on cash flow is everything in business. You, you don't go bust because your profit and loss account says you have, because there's all sorts of funny accounting non-cash items. It's straightforward. When you run out of money, you go bust. Yeah. So get a massive influence on me. And you'll see a whole generation of ex-GC Marconi people who are very much cash is king people because of Lord Wanstock. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, right? And I think you start your book with uh, with this uh, premise also. Uh, but can you share some of those other lessons, like which are not taught in uh, a regular MBA and which you have learned by being in the business? Okay. Let's talk about 
people for a minute. There's a hundred odd stories in here, which are one to four pages long, right? So they're very short and you can dip it in and out of it. And there's one called uh, Good, Bad and Average. And I think people make the mistake of saying, let's hire the best people. I get that. Everybody wants the best people. But what I say is get the best out of people. And the reason why I talk about good, bad, and average is because a period that happened to me in my own life where uh, in the UK, cable TV, we were one of the first countries to launch cable TV. Uh, and the government had a mistaken concept of every town had a cable TV company. So there were far too many. There was 30-something. And later on, we tried to consolidate them and get companies at scale. However, incredibly, what they did was they all agreed to share statistics on how they were doing. So there will be a report every quarter on how fast you answered the phone, how quick did you install things on time, what did customers' feedback with, you know, every aspect of your business. And you could see yourself on a table of 30-odd companies. Uh, and I took over a business that had probably 1,200 people, you know, a big business. Uh, and when I opened the tables, they were bottom or second to bottom on everything. And... I took a massive gamble and I hired a, a lot of coaches and I brought them into a conference centre and I had two big sessions with five or 600 people in each. And I said to them, look, I'm going to show you the truth. You've probably never seen it before and you're not going to like it and you're going to wince and it'll feel horrible. right?" And I showed them quickly all the tables. And then I said to them, look, this is the northwest of England. If we go back to when cotton was first discovered uh, and the cotton mills, this part was the centre of the world. And ever since our great granddad, we've always been taught that we live in gradual decline. I said, I've not had enough, really, because at that point, the UK was the only country in the world, there are more now, that could do internet, cable TV and telecoms in one company. And I said, look, if we could get to the bottom, the top of this table, then temporarily you could say to your grandson, at some point we were the best in the world in what we did. So, so why don't we just fix this? And the reaction to that day was astonishing. And we had eight sites, uh, and everywhere I went, the place was buzzing. And within a year, we were top or second on everything. It was mm -hmm. absolutely astonishing. And as often happens when you have that kind of success, I got a tap on the shoulder and said, could you now go and fix London, Kent, and Essex, please? Right. Uh, so I left. And the guy who followed me, for whatever reason, managed to upset some of the senior managers quite quickly. Uh, and therefore, when the results came out at the end of that year, they were mid-table. So the same 1,200 people had been worst, best, and average, purely because of the way that they were managed and motivated. And I think that's a huge lesson to take through your life. We all have bad days. Let's not pretend that I'm fantastic and I'm fantastic every day. It's a bit like being a footballer. It doesn't look like that. You need constant motivation and help. So the same people can be good, bad, and average. Thank you. I love that. I think uh, I loved how you started with the numbers and statistics. But then when you take that to people, right, uh, like the same people can be good, bad, or average, rather than measuring them again by or judging them by numbers, how yeah. you shifted the leadership and then that helped people see very different. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs or leaders struggle with this at one level, like being responsible for the numbers. Um, but at the second level, right, being empathetic, being understanding, and really move, taking the energy forward, which, as you mentioned, right, sometimes uh, like being very straight and honest, but this is where we are. 
and we'll have to like get back up, up on the table. Otherwise, we are going to go out of business or whatever. So how do you draw that balance between like being very analytical on one side and then being understanding, being empathetic on the other side? Uh, I suppose it's unusual because people have this idea that accountants are dry, boring people who sit in the corner and I don't quite fit that mold, right? So I, I've used numbers as a way of advising what I do, right? Uh, let me give you another one. There's a story in the book called Respect. Uh, and it was, I was listening to a TED talk, so I'm not going to take credit for this. Uh, and there was a lady whose name I can't remember speaking. And they'd done a study around the world. So there were lots of different countries. So it was everything from in Europe, in the UK, in the USA, in Canada, but also in the Far East and India. Uh, and they asked people of all levels, you know, what do you want most? And everybody was expecting promotion prospects and better pay to be the top two things that would come out. And it wasn't. It was respect. I want to be respected by my boss and the people who work alongside me. And if I feel good about what I do, I'll probably do a great job. I think that's a huge, huge lesson to people. You know, I used to say, keep it really simple. Treat other people the way you want to be treated yourself, and you're not going to go very far wrong. And particularly those who get into management positions, who then start to love the authority of it, you've lost it. You've lost it completely. Uh, and you've got to create a situation where win things without paying people more money. You know, I used to meet young people and say, I can't guarantee to pay you more money than everybody else. But I do like picking things that you're supposed to not be able to do. And when somebody says to me, that's not possible, shall we sit there and try and work out how you do it and just have a laugh? So we used to do ridiculous things. And I remember uh, my life split into two halves. The first half, it was a corporate life where I ended up running the 250 million internal business and then age 42. So I was a very late starter. I set up my own business, right? Uh, and just imagine, you know, I started a business in a spare bedroom and then one day, we won the voice contract for the UK House of Parliament. And I pulled the main team together and said, when was that ever on the list? We just kind of got carried away and we did it because nobody told us that we couldn't. Uh, and those are the things that drive people on, things you can feel good about. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's, again, right, very deep wisdom from life experiences, not something which a school can teach you about, right? And at the same time, when you work with now those traditional managers, right, who have come out of business schools, sometimes they can be true drawn by the managing or the numbers part of it that they can lose touch to that. Like, why are we really here? What helps for you, right, in bringing that message, not just for you, but then across across your individual? What has worked for you? I think you've got to find what turns on those particular people. Uh, uh, and treat them accordingly. You know, some people are interested in numbers, some are not. So I'm just going to go back to the numbers for a second, right? And th this is a, a lesson that I try and teach managers. And I'll be honest, so with some I've spectacularly succeeded and others don't understand it. But hopefully you'll understand this bit. When you're asking a question as a manager, it's very often that the answer is a number. It doesn't matter what the question is. It just very often is because you're trying to understand what's going on. If you ask any question and the answer is a number, before you ask the question, guess what you think the answer is going to be. So if I ask you a question, in my head, I think the answer is 100, and you say 306. There's now only two possibilities. Either I've just found an error, and I understand it, I'm right, and I'll ask you a, few, a bit more detail, and I realise that, whoa, be careful with this manager, they're not good at numbers, and they don't understand really how the business works. Or if you give me 
credible explanations why the answer is 306, then I've got to admit that I've just learned something because it doesn't work the way I thought it did. Now, if I didn't guess the answer first and said, what's the answer? And you said 306, I've learned nothing. I have no idea whether it's right or wrong. So, so by just guessing the answer first, you're bound to win. You're bound to either find an error or learn something. And it's one of the greatest management techniques that, that I've used all the way through. And even now I find myself doing it, but I'm very open when I'm wrong. So I don't look or can know one. I'll say, wow, I thought you were going to say this. Can we just understand why you didn't? And then we'll talk about it. Right. Uh, and that helps get people involved. It's a bit like you heard you end a meeting, partly to show that I'm listening, but partly to make sure that I never leave uh, with the wrong impression. I'll often say, can I just summarize what I think I've heard? And then they'll go, uh, yeah, so, sort of, but not quite. You've missed this bit. So I don't think you should ever leave the room with, without doing that bit. But it also shows a bit of humility. You know, that you're not the boss and you're obviously right. Uh, so there's lots of stories like that. Thank you for adding that. And I think uh, that's a wonderful example because even when you're talking about numbers, you're talking about going in prepared, right? Going in with uh, taking some time out for yourself. And then really listening to the other person and summarizing, paraphrasing uh, what you're listening, right? So that that uh, focuses a lot more on the listening rather than the transactional side of things, uh, which uh, which again, uh, like sometimes can but, can be seen as yeah. But let's do that preparation thing. I mean, o often you'll find in a meeting somebody will send you a spreadsheet because that's just the way of the world. Uh, I, let's say you send me a spreadsheet. I can find out within. 15, 20 seconds, whether I think I should trust your spreadsheets or not. If you're on a spreadsheet and the numbers are not aligned and pretty, that tells me that you're not used to using Excel because it's quite simple to do. You know, if I just press on a cell where the answer should be calculation, I can see you type the number in. Yeah. And straight away when I walk in, I know that this person's trying to impress on the spreadsheet, but they don't know how to do it. Right? Now, that text... Little techniques like that take 20, 30 seconds before a meeting to understand who are you dealing with. And you don't necessarily criticize and avoid. Uh, what you find is some people need assistance, and that helps you to know the, what, where it is. Yes. And uh, you spoke about mergers and acquisitions earlier, right? And uh, I think that's uh, the same uh, like people concept, but on a very huge scale. So when it comes to the scale of two organizations, two cultures, uh, meeting together and then creating a fresh new culture, what have been some of the biggest lessons that maybe you can give to new managers or new entrepreneurs? I've done both very big ones where you, where you merge in call centers at five, six hundred, whatever, uh, and that's very difficult. I've done a lot of, but most people will buy businesses smaller than that because that's what they can afford. Let's, let's be frank about it, right? Uh, and w when I first meet a business owner, what I normally say to them is, look, first of all, if you can find anybody, and I'll give you loads of reference, who says anything bad about me, don't deal with me. Life's too short, right? And I don't care what your numbers look like. If we don't get on, I don't want to deal with you. Because if culturally we don't fit together, it doesn't work. Uh, and at the end of the day, I I'll offer you a sensible price, but you've got to decide what you want to do with the next phase of your life. Uh, and what you find often it is uh, some people will say, look, I'd sooner accept a little bit less and work with you and let's enjoy it. Or particularly people who are retiring and want to hand over their businesses, their baby, they want to see that it's going into good hands and it's not people who are just going to, you know, rape and pillage and get the numbers up. Uh, so, so cultural fit is huge when you're doing acquisitions. So I often talk for a long time to people without even going through the numbers. Hmm. 
you know, a bit like this, I ask them to tell the stories and how you get to where you are and which bits work for you and which bits don't. And then we'll get on the numbers because you, you, you have to. Uh, but culturally, if it doesn't fit, don't do it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for adding that part. I think focusing on uh, the future, focusing on the vision, and then see that if that fits first before we talk about anything else. But people send you outline financial information, so you wouldn't be there unless you at least sensibly interested. So you've done that first pass sift. So it's it's in kind of three stages: first numbers sift, then the cultural bit, then the detail numbers. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And now, if I zoom back, like on your life after doing this. What's next for you? Like, what's uh, in the future for you? I do you know. Part-time now, I'm chairman of this. Uh, at some point, uh, I suppose I, I will stop doing this one and hopefully help some of the smaller businesses to grow rapidly. I'm at the point in my life where I, I can afford to do some things for free. So, so it's nice to be able to help the cabinet office and think you're making a difference, although trying to change government is not an easy task. Uh, can I just go back to my life for a second? Because I, I, I sure. want to... People to understand that uh, nobody has this gilded life, you, you know. Uh, my life splits into two. I went through the corporate life until I was in my early 40s, and I ended up uh, running a 250 million turnover business. But I was made redundant twice in 18 months, okay? Uh, and if I can explain that tale, then hopefully if you give some people inspiration that it's never too late, right? Uh, when you're made redundant, people often think it's somehow your fault, and often it's not. You just hit the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, for example, in my cable TV days, we went from 14 businesses to four big regions, and then from four regions to one national boss. And I got the last two, and I came second. But rather than feel pleased about being second for you know a huge job with massive turnover, I was then made redundant because obviously the the winner doesn't want the second one. And some Americans rang me up, and this is around about 2000, 2003. This is the dot-com bubble, as we know it. And some Americans rang me up and said, from Atlanta, uh, we've just bought seven telecoms companies in the UK. It's 250 million turnover. Do you want to run it? Uh, And I turned up on the day and said, look, at that point in the UK, there was only two profitable telecoms companies, BT and what was then Cable and Wireless. So I said, all the other new startups, including you, are losing money. How much money are you losing? How much cash have we got? And they said to me, we lost 20 million last year and you owe BT 19 million. In an incredible 16-month period, we merged seven businesses and we took a 20 million loss to a 1.3, 1.5 million profitability. It was an astonishing turnaround. And then at midnight one night, because of the time difference, the guys from Atlanta rang me up and said, we've no idea you've done this so quickly. Uh, we own businesses in America and Europe as well as the UK. We can't keep up with you, so... We've had to go into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I said, really? I've fixed the business, but I haven't yet paid back BT. And they said, no, 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 no. You'll have to come down with us. I said, really? But after this? And I had to stand up and explain to people uh, that, I'm sorry, we, we've done great, but you, you're going to have to go home. And in that environment in the UK, when a business was bankrupt, uh, it's pretty brutal. There's no notice period. There's no redundancy payments. There's nothing. You know, if you sent home at three in the afternoon, you paid till three in the afternoon, and that's it. Uh, so I went home having been made redundant twice in 18 months. One for coming second for being the boss, and that taught me that the higher you get in an organisation, the more likely there are to be restructures. And at some point, it will happen to you. 
It's just inevitable. You're flying too near the sun, if you like. Uh, and the other one is, if you're part of a group, it's the groups that will decide whether you survive rather than your individual little bit. Right. And I went home and I was very depressed. Uh, and I, it's the period that I call black tie dinners to no dinners. I went, I went from being relatively well known to, the, and suddenly dot com bubble burst and my CV that said Chief Exec 250 bit in turnover, uh, the banks were closing them all down. There, there were no businesses of that size. And it took me several months. Uh, to realise that unless I created my own business, I wasn't going to get employed again, probably. Uh, because when you're the boss, you can't apply for lower end of the chain because nobody's going to hire you because they think you want their job straight away. But, uh, and I'll be frank, whilst I was out to the boat and looking like me, when I went home, I probably drank too much and I made a right mess in my life. And I'm, I'm amazed that no life ever stuck with me through that period because I was difficult to live with. Uh, but she did, thank God. And eventually, I raised three and a quarter million and so I started a business age 42, carried on that incredible run of profitability growth. Uh, and when I stood down, it had 70 million sales and any bit of 12 million a year. Uh, so I hope that shows people one, it's never too late to start up a business. Just treat everything you've learned up to that point as just a training exercise for it. And don't expect life not to have the down bits because that's just what happens. Uh, so I'm a good example of a you can claw your way back again. And I don't people think that sort of, you know, I've had this great life, I've had a great life, but there's been bits that it hurts. And if you are one of those who made redundant, look at it like I did. Wrong place, wrong time. But it's hard at the time. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's so lovely. I'm like uh, so much in gratitude for you to share that so openly. Like, uh, because exactly as you said, right, sometimes it's so easy to take it too personally rather than seeing this as a, like as a, just as an outcome of many multiple factors at play. Uh, but then what you also shared about uh, like being in a depressed place or it can really mess things around in your personal life as well. But then uh, like building that up, up again. So that itself is a wonderful lesson, but going through that period can still like really suck. So what lesson or what helped you during that period uh, to write, to really not fold and to come back up and to say that let's do that. Okay. Uh, when I was on my own, I was really struggling because I felt like I was getting nowhere. And then uh, my former boss said, T tell me the business plan. And he said, I like that, and I'll put some of my own money in it. And that single sentence probably changed my life. And suddenly, there were two of us walking the streets trying to raise money, and he was introduced to us. And never underestimate, uh, it's not as though two versus one is twice as good. It's a different world. It's completely, you've people to talk to and share your problems with. And Roger Wilson then, uh, when I was chief exec for 16 years, became my, my chairman. Uh, and we had a, and there's a bits in the book about how chairmen and chief execs should work together ideally, right? Uh, and you always need somebody else, but you, they'll only join you if you're honest. You know, uh, tell them what you're trying to do. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, can I hopefully finish with a funny story? Let's lighten it for us for a second then. Sure, uh, sure. There's been some remarkable bits in my life. Okay. This is a story called Give the Woman a Chicken. Okay. Uh, when I was in cable TV, we had an American boss, and he said to me one day, incredibly, I want you to go to America. I want you to go and visit 10 companies whose only thing in common is uh, they've won the best customer service in their industry. And they were completely different from a car dealership to 
mortgages to all sorts of things. He said, and when you come back, tell me what you've learned. And then will you go and tell your own people? Because I've seen you on stage and things. And I went one day to a supermarket. And this supermarket only had two, but they managed to win highest sales per square foot in the world, which when a little tiny supermarket beats Walmart and Tesco, that's just incredible. And the guy who owned it was one of the world's great innovators. Uh, he had this simple idea that if you could smell food, you'd buy more food. So he was the first ever to invent in-store bakeries. He invented uh, the rotisserie chicken, etc. And Now, this, those ideas were copied later. So I was listening to this whole story, and they said, please feel free, go and have a wander in the supermarket. So I wandered across uh, to the famous rotisserie, thinking this is one of the first ones in the world. Uh, I was completely surprised because a, a rather large lady walked in and just banged onto the counter uh, some tin foil and opened it and, and said, this chicken was dreadful. It was absolutely dry. It was overdone. It was burned. It was awful. I want my money back. And the man behind the counter said to her, sorry, but you've eaten it all. This is just a carcass. No, you can't do your money back. She said, I've got three teenage sons. If anything stands still for 30 seconds, they'll eat it. You know, you can't go on a Sunday lunch and tell teenage boys you've got nothing to eat. So they've eaten it. Well, you're not getting your money back. So she shouted something rude at him and stormed out. And I'm thinking, wow, I wasn't expecting this in a place so famous. And the manager of the store walked across to the guy behind the chicken counter. And I thought, I need to listen to this next bit. And the manager said to him, how old was that lady? He said, well, I don't know. It's a guess. He said, well, she looked like she'd had children quite young, say, 40, early 40s. And he said, uh, so how many supermarkets in this town? He said, two, as a competitor. He said, and what does an average customer spend? He said, I don't know, $100 a week. He said, so for the next 25 years, $100 a week, so let's do that math for a minute, 100 times 50, $5,000 a year, around about $125,000 just walked out that door because you wouldn't give her $5 for a chicken. And I use that story to illustrate, uh, always look at the lifetime value of a customer, not the problem you're trying to solve now. And that was a great example where the guy had lost $125,000 for five. Now, so when I come back to England, uh, I'm then telling these stories, and we hired four or five theatres, uh, and the audience was about two to 500 each time. And I used to walk on stage with a thing called a walk across America. And I would have a shopping bag, and I'd pull an item out, and that would remind me to tell a story about that item. So that, for me, even though I told the same stories, they came out in a different order. But always at the bottom was a rubber chicken. And I would tell this story last, and I would say, you always need to remember give the woman a chicken. I would throw a rubber chicken into the audience and somebody would catch it. And it became very well known because of that stunt at the end. And we got to the fifth day and I arrived a little late and somebody, I must have misheard what they said. And I think somebody said, we've run out of rubber chickens. And uh, I went to the bottom. Now I've been on stage for over an hour by now and the adrenaline's pumping things. And I put the hand in and I, and I throw the chicken in the audience and suddenly realised that it's a frozen chicken. Oh, my Lord, I've just thrown a frozen chicken in the audience. I might injure somebody. Uh, and one of the guys in the audience jumped up 
caught it spectacularly and bowed as though he was a rugby player. Uh, and the audience assumed this was part of the act and just burst into applause. Uh, so I could easily have had one of those famous headlines, boss kills staff with frozen chicken. Right. Uh, it's a great story about the lifetime value of customers. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I think a story says uh, like many things better than what we can say in otherwise language, right? Exactly. Uh, what I'm learning, right, is in, in that story is the power of humor, is the power of uh, demonstration, something rather than communicating something, uh, the power of what you share, like the lifetime value, but also the very importance of uh, being empathetic uh, to the person and the in front of you rather than seeing them as a transaction. But the key point is, if you enjoyed that story, you'll tell somebody else. Absolutely. I've been on a train course today. It was a bit dull. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so so many wonderful lessons for uh, for me as well. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, for sharing all of that. Uh, I loved who you are. I loved what you have done and achieved. Uh, and also, right, how you have shared today your life with us, uh, with everybody. I'm sure everybody who is listening will take value from that. And before, before we end, right, if anybody wants to reach out to you, anybody wants to find out more about what you are up to, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, just go onto LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Or if you do want the vote, just go on Amazon and all the stories are on the Street Smart MBA. Thank you. Thank you. I will make sure to include the book link and your LinkedIn link with the show notes okay. when the episode yeah. comes out. Uh, and thank you once again for being who you are. See you soon. All the best. Thank you. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Choosing Leadership with Sumit Gupta. I choose leadership every time I record this podcast and I invite you to do the same. I invite you to design a life of joy, meaning, pride and satisfaction, not just for yourself, but for everybody around you. If you got something out of this episode, would you share this episode on social media? And if you know somebody who would be a great guest, can you tag them on social media to let them know about the show? And if you are a leader who wants to acknowledge how far you have come and have big dreams for the future, please reach out to me to be a guest on this podcast. And I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. This is what I do most naturally, to lovingly and gently provoke you, to help you see your own light, to help you see what you are already capable of. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and it means a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to deployyourself.com and subscribe to my newsletter or follow me on LinkedIn. I want to thank everyone who contributed to making this show a reality and I want to thank you for listening. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved and you matter. This is Sumit. Until next time, keep choosing leadership.